Chapter 6 of Southern Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Southern Arabia by James and Mabel Bent. Chapter 6 Mukella. After our journeys in South Africa and Abyssinia, it was suggested to my husband that a survey of the Hadramaut by an independent traveler would be useful to the government. So in the winter of 1893-1894, we determined to do our best to penetrate into this unknown district, which anciently was the center of the frankincense and myrrh trade, one of the most famed commercial centers of Arabi the Blessed, before Mohammedan fanaticism blighted all industries and closed the peninsula to the outer world. In the proper acceptation of the term, the Hadramaut at the present time is not a district running along the southeast coast of Arabia, between the sea and the central desert, as is generally supposed. But it is simply a broad valley, running for one hundred miles or more parallel to the coast, by which the valleys of the high Arabian tableland discharge their not abundant supply of water into the sea at Sehut, towards which place this valley gradually slopes. There is every reason to believe that anciently, too, the Hadramaut meant only this valley. We learnt from Himyaritic inscriptions that five centuries B.C. the name was spelt by the Himyars as it is now, namely T-M-R-D-H. Beginning of reader's note, symbol, see page image, end of reader's note, and meant in that tongue the enclosure or valley of death a name which in Hebrew form corresponds exactly to that of Hazer Mavith, of the tenth chapter of Genesis, and which the Greeks, in their usual slipshod manner, occasioned by their inability, as is the case still, to pronounce a pure H, converted into chatormite, a form which still survives in the Italian word ketrame, or pitch. Owing to the intense fanaticism of the inhabitants, this main valley has been reached only by one European before ourselves, namely, Er Leo Hirsch, in 1893. In 1846, von Rede made a bold attempt to reach it, but only got as far as the collateral valley of Doan. My husband and I were the first to attempt, in the latter part of 1893 and the early part of 1894, this journey without any disguise, and with a considerable train of followers. And I think, for this very reason, that we went openly, we made more impression on the natives, and were able to remain there longer and see more than might otherwise have been the case, and to establish relations with the inhabitants which, I hope, will hereafter lead to very satisfactory results. Having arrived at Aden with letters of recommendation to the resident from the Indian government and the India office, besides private introductions, we were amazed at all the difficulties thrown in our way it quite appeared as if we had left our native land to do some evil deed to its detriment, and we were made to feel how thoroughly degrading it is to take up the vocation of an archaeologist and explorer. Many strange and unexpected things befell us, but the most remarkable of all was that when a certain surgeon captain asked for leave to accompany us, it was refused to him on the ground that Mr. Theodore Bent's expedition was not sanctioned by government in spite of the fact that the Indian government had actually placed, at my husband's disposal, a surveyor, Imam Sharif, Khan Bahadur. 
we had no assistance beyond two very inferior letters to the sultans of Makalla and Sheher, which made them think we were people of the rank of merchants, they afterwards said. Imam Sharif has travelled much with Englishmen, so he speaks our language perfectly, and having a keen sense of humour, plenty of courage and tact, and no Mohammedan prejudices, we got on splendidly together. He was a very agreeable member of the party. My husband paid all his expenses from Quetta via Bombay, with three servants, including their tents and camp equipage, and back to Quetta. Our party was rather a large one, for besides ourselves and our faithful Greek servant Matthaios, who has accompanied us in so many of our journeys, we had with us not only the Indians, but a young gardener from Kew, William Lunt by name, as botanist, and an Egyptian named Mahmoud Bayoumi, as naturalist, sent by Dr. Anderson, whose collections are now in the British Museum of Natural History at South Kensington. The former was provided with all the requisites for digging up forest trees, and Mahmoud had with him all that was necessary for pickling and preserving large mammals, for no one knew what might be found in the unknown land, and many were the volunteers to join the party as hunters, who promised to keep us in game whereas if they had come they would only have found reptiles. An interpreter was recommended to us by the native political agent at Aden, Salah Mohammed Jafar, Khan Bahadur, a certain Salah Hassan. He proved to be a fanatical Muslim, whose only object seemed to be to terrify us and to raise enemies against us, in order to prevent our trampling the holy land where Mohammed was born. Throughout our journey he was a constant source of difficulty and danger. Our starting point for the interior was Makella, which is 230 miles from Aden, and is the only spot between Aden and Muscat which has any pretensions to the name of port. The name itself means harbor. It is first mentioned by Ibn Mujawir. Hamdani calls it El Asa Lhasa, and Masudi gives the name as Lhasa. The harbour is not available during the southwest monsoon, and then all the boats go off to Raesburum or the basalt head. Here we were deposited in December 1893 by a chance steamer, one which had been chartered and on which for a consideration we were allowed to take passage. I took turns with the captain to sleep in his cabin, but there was nothing but the duck for the others. Immediately behind the town rise grim, arid mountains of a reddish hue, and the town is plastered against this rich-tinged background. By the shore, like a lighthouse, stands the white minaret of the mosque, the walls and pinnacles of which are covered with dense masses of seabirds and pigeons. The gate of this mosque, which is really nearly in the sea, is blocked up by tanks so that no one can enter with unwashed feet. Not far from this rises the huge palace where the sultan dwells, reminding one of a whitewashed mill. White, red, and brown are the dominant colors of the town, and in the harbor the Arab dows, with fantastic sterns, rock to and fro in the unsteady sea, forming altogether a picturesque and unusual scene. Beyond the Beb Asab are huts where dwell the Bedouin who come in from the mountains, they are not allowed to sleep within the town. There is a praying place just outside the gate. In the middle of the town is a great cemetery full of tamarisks and containing the sacred tomb of the sainted Wali Yaqub in the center. 
we were amused by a dance at a straight corner to the beating of drums. It consisted of a hot, seething mass of brown bodies writhing about and apparently enjoying themselves. Stone tobacco pipes are made here of a kind of limestone, very curly silver powder flasks, rather like nautilus shells, and curious guns without stocks. The Bedou women wear tremendously heavy belts and very wide brass armlets. Their faces are veiled with something like the yashmak of Egypt, but it is of plain blue calico, a little embroidered. Makella is ruled over by a sultan of the al Qaiti family, whose connection with India has made them very English in their sympathies, and His Majesty's general appearance, with his velvet coat and jeweled daggers, is far more Indian than Arabian. Really, the most influential people in the town are the money-grubbing Parsis from Bombay, and it is essentially one of those commercial centers where Hindustani is spoken nearly as much as Arabian. The government of the country is now almost entirely in the hands of the al Qaiti family, which at present is the most powerful family in the district, and is reputed to be the richest in Arabia. About five generations ago, the Sayyids of the Abu Bakr family, at that time the chief Arab family at the Hadramaut, who claimed descent from the first of the Khalifs, were at variance with the Bedou tribes, and in their extremity they invited assistance from the chiefs of the Yafia tribe, who inhabit the Yafia district, to the northeast of Aden. To this request, the al Qaiti family responded by sending assistance to the Sayyids of the Hadramaut, putting down the troublesome Bedou tribes, and establishing a fair amount of peace and prosperity in the country. Though even to this day, the Bedouin of the mountains are ever ready to swoop down and harass the more peaceful inhabitants of the towns. At the same time, the al Qaiti family established themselves in the Hadramaut, and for the last four generations have been steadily adding to the power thus acquired. Makella, Shehar, Shabam, Haura, Hagarain, all belong to them, and they are continually increasing, by purchase, the area of their influence in the collateral valleys, building substantial castles, and establishing one of the most powerful dynasties in this much-divided country. They get all their money from the strait settlements, for it has been the custom of the Hadrami to leave their own sterile country to seek their fortunes abroad. The Nizam of Hyderabad has an Arab regiment composed entirely of Hadrami, and the Sultan Nawazjang, the present head of the al Qaiti family, is its general. He lives in India and governs his Arabian possessions by deputy. His son Ghalib ruled in Shahar. His nephew Manasser, who receives a dollar a day from England, ruled in Makella, and his nephew Saleh ruled in Shabam, and the governors of the other towns are mostly connections of this family. The power and wealth of this family are almost the only guarantee for peace and prosperity in an otherwise lawless country. The white palace of the Sultan Manasser is six stories high, with little carved windows and a pretty sort of cornice of open-work bricks, unbaked, of course, save by the sun. It stands on a little peninsula, and like Riviera towns, has pretty coast views on either side. The Sultan received us with his two young sons, dressed up in as many fine clothes as it was possible to put on, and attended by his vizier, Abdul Khalik. No business was done as to our departure, but only compliments were paid on both sides. After we had separated, presents were sent by us, loaves of sugar being an indispensable accompaniment. The so-called palace in which we were lodged was next to the mosque and close to the bazaar. 
the smells and noise were almost unendurable so we worked hard to get our preparations made and to make our sojourn here as short as possible this palace was a large building a very dirty staircase led to a quantity of rooms large and small inhabited in rather a confusing manner not only by our own party but by another and to get at our servants we had to pick our way between the prostrate forms of an arabian gentleman and his attendants we were the first arrivals so we collected from the various rooms as many bits of torn and rotten old matting as we could find to keep the dust down in our own room which was about forty feet long by thirty feet wide so very much covered with dust that no pavement could be seen without digging it would have been necessary to have seven maids with seven brooms to sweep for half a year before they could have cleared that room windows were all round unglazed of course and quite shutterless we set out our furniture and had plenty of room to spread the baggage round us an enormous packing case from kew gardens had little besides a great fork in it so that case came no farther another case to which the botanist had to resort constantly had always to be tied up with rope as it had neither lock nor hinges we were six days at mckella arranging about camels and safe conduct and wondering when we should get away so of course we had plenty of time to inspect the town which on account of the many parsees had quite an indian air in some parts sometimes one comes upon a deliciously scented part in the bazaars where myrrh and spices a tar of roses and rose leaves are sold in little grimy holes almost too small to enter but for the part near the fish market i can only say that awful stenches prevail and the part where dates and other fruits are sold is almost impassable from flies for our journey inland we were entrusted by the sultan to a tribe of bedouin and their camels mokhayek was the name of our makadam or headman and his tribe rejoiced in the name of Khaliki. They were tiny spare men, quite beardless, with very refined, gentle faces. They might easily have been taken for women, so gentle and pretty were they. They were naturally dark, and made darker still by dirt and indigo. Their long, shaggy hair was twisted up into a knot and bound by a long plaited leather string, like a boot lace, which was wound round the hair and then two or three times round the head like the fillet worn by greek women in ancient times they were naked save for a loincloth and the girdle to which were attached their brass powder flasks shaped like a ram's horn their silver cases for flint and steel their daggers and their thorn extractors consisting of a picker and tweezers fastened together they are very different from the stately bedouin of syria and egypt and are both as to religion and physique distinctly an aboriginal race of southern arabia as different from the arab as the hindu is from the anglo-saxon our ideas as to bedouin and bedoui which latter word we never heard while we were in southern arabia were that they were tall bearded men not very dark in color and our imaginations connected them with hospitality and much clothes none of these characteristics are found among the bedouin of this district bedouin is not a word in use but bedou for both singular and plural they speak of themselves as el bedou and when they have seen us wondering at some strange custom they have said apologetically ah bedou bedou i have heard them address a man whose name they did not know ya bedou i mean to use bedou for singular and bedouin for plural besides the bedouin we were accompanied by five soldiers muafik al buriti taisir fahari buriki 
and an old man. For the twenty-two camels, we paid one hundred and seventy-five dollars to Hagarain, a journey, we were told, of twenty days. It would have been useless to have had riding camels, as one could get no faster than the baggage and soldiers, and travelling so far daily and up such rocks, one had to go at foot-pace. We should have had to wait longer at Makella while more camels were collected, and the more camels you have, the farther they stray when food is scarce, and the more chance there is of the annoyance of waiting for lost camels to be found, and sometimes found too late to start that day. We need not have had twenty-two camels, and once later all the baggage was sent on ten, but this was to suit the purposes of the Bedouin. Before proceeding further with our journey, I will here say a few words concerning the somewhat complex body politic of this portion of Arabia, the inhabitants of which may be divided into four distinct classes. Firstly, there are numerous wild tribes of Bedouins scattered all over the country, who do all the carrying trade, rear and own most of the camels, and possess large tracts of country, chiefly on the highlands and smaller valleys. They are very numerous and powerful, and the Arabs of the towns are certainly afraid of them, for they can make traveling in the country very difficult, and even blockade the towns. They never live in tents, as do the Bedouin of northern Arabia. The richer ones have quite large houses, whilst the poorer ones, those in Shabwa and the Wadi Adim, for instance, dwell in caves. Secondly, we have the Arabs proper, a decidedly later importation into the country than the Bedouin. They live in and cultivate the lands around the towns. Many of them carry on trade and go to India and the Strait settlements, and some of them are very wealthy. They also are divided into tribes. The chief of those dwelling in the Hadramount are the Yafai, Katiri, Minhali, Amri, and Tamimi. The Bedouin reside amongst them, and they are constantly at war with one another, and the complex system of tribal union is exceedingly difficult to grasp. Thirdly, we have the Sayyids and Sharifs, a sort of aristocratic hierarchy, who trace their descent from the daughter and son of the Prophet. Their influence in the Hadramount is enormous, and they fan the religious superstition of the people, for to this they owe their existence. They boast that their pedigree is purer than that of any other Sayyid family, even than those of Mecca and Medina. Sayyids and Sharifs are to be found in all the large towns and considerable villages, and even the Arab sultans show them a marked respect and kiss their hands when they enter a room. They have a distinct jurisdiction of their own, and most disputed points of property, water rights, and so on are referred to their decision. They look with peculiar distrust on the introduction of external influence into their sacred country, and are the obstructionists of the Hadramaut, but at the same time their influence is decidedly towards law and order in a lawless land. They never carry arms. Lastly, we have the slave population of the Hadramaut, all of African origin, and the freed slaves who have married and settled in the country. Most of the tillers of the soil, personal servants, and the soldiers of the sultans are of this class. End of chapter 6